I see you don't have a lifeguard here at your beach. I'm not at the beach. This is a bathtub. No body of water is safe without a lifeguard. It's two feet deep. Splish splash, I was taking a bath. Long about a Saturday night. Yeah. Rubbed up, just relaxing in the tub. Thinking everything was alright. Hi, this is Robert Trogdon. And this is Kirk Kernut. And welcome to Season 2 of... Master of the Forty. This is a podcast devoted to the short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald. It was the story that stunned the nation. A 14-year-old girl electrocuted while using her cell phone in the bathtub. This is our second episode of our second season, and boy, did we pick a dilly. This one has to be perhaps the most critically obscure story maybe we've done so far. It is by any measure a piece that we would call light. So Robert, you want to tell us what story we're going to discuss today? We are discussing Porcelain and Pink, a one-act play which was published in January 1920 in the Smart Set. So appearing four months before the publication of this side of paradise. Fitzgerald's still a relative unknown at this point. It's an interesting piece because it is, I think it's transitional in a sense, because his first break was selling this side of paradise to Scribner's. But shortly after that, he sold a number of stories, including this one, to the smart set, which was a prestigious outlet, which would have gotten his name out there but did not pay very well. I I believe these stories maybe brought in $40 a piece as opposed to the breakthrough he would soon have where he began selling stories like Bernice Bob's Her Hair to uh, Saturday Evening Post, starting at $400 a piece. So an interesting piece, very unusual. It was collected in Tales of the Jazz Age. And in fact, if you look at the running order of stories in there, it is smack dab between May Day and The Diamond as Big as the Ritz, which is kind of like being a squirt of French's mustard between between two slices of artisanal cheese. It almost feels like, to me, a little breather in that collection. I don't know if anyone's done anything with the way that Fitzgerald constructed his short story collections. I mean, we we know it, it's always sort of the odd thing of the things that he decided to include and the things that he left out. And uh, with this story, it was written well before Head and Shoulders and Bernice Bob's or Hair and things like that, but it wasn't included in Flappers and Philosophers. It seems to me that there's a lot of what I would call filler in Tales of the Jazz Age. There's this, there's Tarquin of, of Cheapside, mm-hmm. Jemina, the, the mountain girl. And my favorite, Mr. Icky. <laughs> Let me just put it this way. On your tombstone, you don't want to be remembered as at least better than Mr. Icky. <laughs> yes, that's, that's, that's the case. I would say it's definitely a critically neglected short story. The, the best I could find was in reviews of uh, Tales of the Jazz Age. One review called it ludicrous, meant to be nothing more than a piece of nonsense. And at that, Mr. Fitzgerald succeeded. I did find a couple reviews that were surprisingly positive about it, though. I found one from the, now granted, this is not the New York Times, but the York Daily Record, which uh, Mm. I'm sure you still have a subscription to. But it says it's a nonsensical playlet that is amazingly funny simply because it's nonsensical. I would say that amazingly is probably hyperbole there because this piece has charm, but I don't find it particularly brilliant or insightful. And I think in some ways that has to do with the form of it that it's cast in. This is presented as a one-act play. And that raises the question of why did Fitzgerald break into writing short stories, doing one-act plays? One of his earliest ones was a piece called The Debutante, 
which he later stitched into, well, uh, shortly before this story appeared, had stitched into this side of paradise as a, as a scene. So Robert, tell us a little bit about why he's writing in the form of plays and what you think the effect of that is, and maybe what are the drawbacks of doing it? Well, I mean, if you look at Fitzgerald's Princeton career, uh, and even before that, back in St. Paul, you look at, say, like a, a Basil uh, Duke Lee story, The Scandal Detectives, which is based upon sort of this amateur theatrical that that Fitzgerald wrote when sometime in, was it prep school or before he had gone to prep school? I think it's during prep school, but if not, it's it's when he's very young. I mean, he's only, he's he's right after he enters adolescence it's right as he enters adolescence and then there's the the three plays for the triangle club that he writes lyrics for he actually wasn't he co-writer of five uh five five fee the first one mm-hmm. and so there's all the things about like going to new york and sort of the the, the romance of the chorus girls and and whatnot but in the 19 teens and even in the 1920s Theater was such the major, major art form, much more so than than films were. Yeah, movies were just taking off in this period. They were a brand new technology and people were much more inclined to go to. uh, I mean, movies scared people when they first started coming out uh, and people were much more used to going to theaters. And we're not we're not necessarily talking high culture theater. No, I mean, we're one of the things that I've been doing recently for uh, working on a Hemingway story is is sort of falling into uh, the history of burlesque companies and vaudeville. And there was like these these huge organizations, um, one called the Columbia Wheel that had uh, burlesque companies, which would be like a chorus of or several, you know, attractive females, very lowbrow comics, and they would perform skits, and there would be sort of like the parade of the beautiful girls, and and then there would be another skit. The closest thing that I can think of to what these skits were like would be, say, a Marx Brothers routine from some of their some of their films. And which is kind of makes sense for this, because if you look at the contents for the smart set when this appeared, one of the people uh, that is also published in that issue of the smart set was S.J. Kaufman, who is credited as author of some of the some of the better Marx Brothers movies. So it's he's coming from that. So but it's it's a, a form of entertainment that he's very familiar with. Right. Exactly. It's a form of entertainment that probably the the readers of the smart set and of tales of the jazz age would be more familiar with than we are now. A lot of those comedians, as we think is uh, 20 years later would be the golden age of radio in the thirties really got their start in vaudeville, George Burns, Gracie Allen, Abbott and Costello's who who's on first comes out of the vaudeville tradition. Right. And Three Stooges, Mm -hmm. all of those people got their start in those theaters where you would do those kind of slapstick routines. And I'm glad you mentioned burlesque because burlesque, the bodier side of it, of course, is is, grew into topless clubs and later gentlemen's clubs, what we think of as the uh, stripper business. But it all traded on like this sort of... uh suggestiveness the double entendre um the bodiness it's much more risque if you look at some of these routines and they're very difficult to sort of find transcriptions of these routines for what they were but those you can find are a lot more risque than we would necessarily think that they would be putting on in the the 19 teens and 1920s right that was part of the appeal of going to vaudeville there's a letter from Fitzgerald to his agent very early in 1920. It's January 8th, 1920. So this is when the smart set has just come out. And keep in mind, this is before this side of paradise hits bookshelves. So Fitzgerald is an unknown and he writes, uh, he sends a telegram. He's in St. Paul. He's, he's just getting ready to head to new Orleans 
where he will do the proofs on this side of paradise and spend a couple unhappy months. But actually, I think it's three weeks. It's not even a month. But he writes Harold Ober and he says, I've received a telegram from a man named S. Wakefield uh, at the Princeton Hotel who's asking me about the lowest royalty on my play, Porcelain and Pink, in current smart set. Please get in touch with him and make arrangements if you think best. So apparently this S. Wakefield was interested in getting the rights to the play and staging it. He says uh, in, a, in an accompanying letter a little, a little bit on, sent you a telegram today about uh, my smart set playlet. Of course, if this man is a burlesque king or a 10-20-30, I don't suppose it'd be best, but any arrangements you make will satisfy me. It's interesting that he distinguishes between burlesque and 10-20-30. I never really knew what 10, 20, 30 was until I read some of the, the notes for uh, that Jim West wrote for uh, Flappers and Philosophers. But it, uh, 10, 20, 30 was a theater where the best seats in the house cost you 30 cents, which would have been fairly expensive for the time. That would have been, you know, the equivalent of eight or nine dollars today, which I guess in our world, that's a movie, <laughs> movie ticket now. And then the cheaper seats would have been 20 and then the, the, the way back mm-hmm. seats would have been 10 and the 10, 20, 30 had a, had a fairly bad reputation as attracting people who would pay only 10 cents to be able to get in a the theater. So it was a lot rowdier. The audience probably, you know, kind of proto blues brothers throwing beer bottles at the stage. And you think of the blazing saddles yeah, uh, yeah. scene with battle and con and the, uh, and the Prussians. Tired of playing the game. Ain't it a crying shame? I'm so You know, Fitzgerald nursed ambitions to be a Broadway playwright. And we've talked about how many of these early stories are comedies, social comedies that have a great deal of humor in them that we that we neglect today. And I don't find this story particularly funny. I don't think it quite snaps, crackles and pops in the way that uh, Bernice Bob's her hair or the offshore pirate does. But he's clearly cultivating this possibility that in as well as becoming a novelist and as well as becoming a highly paid short story writer, that he could crank out these one act plays and that people by virtue of the strength of his name would be interested in them and get them on the stage. And the idea was that perhaps down the line that would get Broadway producers interested in in working with him. Now that all that that dream fades away by 1923. I got to say, I'm having a very, very difficult time imagining how exactly you would stage this particular one act play, because for the most of it, it's it's three characters, two sisters and one of them boyfriend, Julian Lois. You can tell that he's writing this playlet around the same time that he's writing Bernice Bob's Her Hair, because uh, Julie is very similar to the antagonist of that famous story, whose name is Marjorie Harvey, I believe. And then Lois, who's kind of the stuffier, prim, more prim one, is very similar to uh to Bernice. And the differences in this story is it's Lois who gets the comeuppance and and Julie, who's kind of the victor. But in fact, I found on YouTube a recent student production of this story that I encourage folks to look up because it is it is pretty interesting. I was trying to visualize part of the gimmick of the play is the boyfriend peeks through the window. He doesn't realize it's a bathroom. He can't see Never mind, he can't see the tub. He doesn't, all he knows is he's talking to one of these sisters and he assumes it's the one he's pursuing, which is Lois, but it's actually Julie. And she becomes flirtatious, sexually provocative with him. 
in a way that kind of blows his socks off. He doesn't quite know what's going on. And just to give a quick summary of it, it, I mean, the whole premise of the plot is you, you, the curtain rises on a, on a naked girl in a bathtub and she has this conversation with the young man from the window that can't see her. The sister comes in, just thinks that her boyfriend is peeping in on her sister faints and it ends on a joke where the boyfriend says, I better rush in and see if she's okay. And then the girl in the bathtub says, I guess I better get out. And before she, as she's rising from the tub, presumably to titillate the audience with the uh, promise of seeing a naked girl, the curtain is supposed to fall. And that's the whole story in a nutshell. And the stage directions, Fitzgerald's stage directions quite clearly sort of indicate that this cannot be staged because at the yeah. very end is like uh, the she puts her hands on the side of the tub to lift herself out and a murmur half gasp half sigh ripples from the audience and just at that moment a belasco midnight comes quickly down and blots out the stage curtain there's a famous reference to belasco in uh I believe, isn't it Belasco in The Great Gatsby? David Belasco. I mean, he's known for these very elaborate and ornate and Broadway productions. He's always like, you know, scandals of 1921 and uh, things of that nature. And the idea was that his, that the stages were so realistic that if you had a bathtub in it, the water would run. This is kind of what would later be known in a different context as kitchen sink drama. But it's interesting that he references Belasco here and that Belasco later shows up. I believe it's either Owl Eyes or Kip Clipspringer. A regular Belasco. Right. Who calls Gatsby that for creating the illusion of this of this library uh, in his mansion. But, you know, to talk about the stage directions a little bit, what he's done is he's he he didn't invent this kind of what we might think of as metafictional drama. You know, if you were staging this, you're not, the audience is going to be totally unaware of the stage directions. Stage directions are in place for the director and the producers to decide how it's going to be staged. But in the late 19th century, beginning with Oscar Wilde and really more with George Bernard Shaw, stage directions became a way for authors to, or playwrights to kind of ironically comment upon the action. And eventually stage directions would become part of the stage. Uh, Very famously, Thornton Wilder's Our Town does that. And so does Zelda Fitzgerald's Scandalabra, by the way, which is a, um, you know, a production that flopped uh, in 1933, in part because nobody could make sense of it. Uh, because the players that the amateur players that did it did not include the stage directions. So none of it made sense to the audience. So this whole idea of stage directions being having a a different purpose when they're read, as opposed to when when the plays are dramatized, really points out uh, the way that the, the, the form of a playlet works very differently on the page than it would live. Right, exactly. I mean, it's just, it's almost as if, you know, it's Fitzgerald is doing metafiction before there is such a concept of metafiction because they, they, they call direction. Yeah. He, he calls attention to the plot. I mean, in the uh, opening, he's like, Lois is a year older than Julia and is nearly her double in face and voice, but in a, in her clothes and expression are the marks of a conservative. Yes, you've guessed it. Mistaken identity is the old rusty pivot upon which the plot turns. And it's it's almost as if Fitzgerald is is daring himself write a story with the most hackneyed old you know old rusty pivot idea that you that you can possibly have. And in fact, those sorts of commentaries are all over these stage directions. I mean, at another point, he, when he talks about the placement of the window, which does not allow the person to see that it's a bathroom, never mind uh, that there's somebody in it, he says, you begin to suspect the plot. And then right after that, he says, we open conventionally enough with a song. 
And so he, he is using these, these stage directions as a way of pointing out to readers of the smart set that what he's in a, in a sense doing is satirizing the conventions of the stage, what would be the cliches of 19-1920 vaudeville theater. Again, it's just interesting that in the productions that you see on YouTube, n- none of that's in the, in the performance. So we lose that whole idea that we're re- what we're really satirizing are the gimmicks. It's an amusing little trifle. I mean, it's the best way I can put it. I mean, it's it's not anything yeah. that sort of stays with you. And you can sort of see some of the humor that you get in Bernice Bob's or Hair, some of the humor that you get in a story like Offshore Pirate, which is with the ending there of like, and she kissed him in the illustration, a very self-reflexive story as well and cause attention to it to it being a story. But there's almost an intentional lack of depth. The bathtub is deeper. Yeah, intentional lack of depth. Right. He knew he wasn't even writing The Importance of Being Earnest here, or Pygmalion. One of the famous things about Tales of the Jazz Age is he included a sort of mock table of contents in which he comments on a lot of the stories in a way that hurt his reputation by making fun of the the lightness of them. And so this is what he has to say about porcelain and pink. And it's done in form of, uh, of in the form of a dialogue. Do you write for any other magazines inquired the young lady? Oh yes. I assured her. I've had some stories and plays in the smart set. For instance, the lady shivered the smart set. She exclaimed, how can you, why they publish stuff about girls in blue bathtubs and silly things like that. And I had the magnificent joy of telling her that she was referring to porcelain and pink, which had appeared there several months before. So he knows this is, this is a pretty honestly stupid story, nothing weighty or, or profound. And again, it's almost like you buy a Bob Dylan album and you're expecting something like Tangled Up in Blue or one of the really profound songs, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. And instead you get something like um, when he did that album Self-Portrait and he, he uh, you know, just did kind of nonsense songs. And well, you are like Neil Young and the one he did with the with the vocoder. Yeah, yeah. Trans. Tra- oh God, I forgot that. Okay. You know, almost impossible to listen to. No, very much so. Or Paul McCartney and 50 years ago, where you buy one album and you're getting maybe I'm amazed or backseat of my car, these great, almost classically influenced suites of songs, and then you get the album Wildlife, which has a song like Bit Bop on it or something. And you just like, you know, why even put this out there? It's almost a taunt in a way, I think, to include this in Tales of the Jazz Age. He certainly had much better stories on hand. And honestly, I think you and I both agree that one of the biggest failures of Tales of the Jazz Age is that he did not include the two-part Saturday Evening Post story, The Popular Girl, from earlier that year. I would have to say, though, just in sort of as a way of defense, looking back on season one of this auspicious podcast, that I think I like this story better for what it is than something like The Leaves of Happiness or Gretchen's 40 Winks, where this sentimentality of the lees of happiness is sort of gets me and sort of the artlessness of sections of Gretchen's 40 winks really bother me this is this never sets out to claim that it is a check off brilliant short story i mean it's sort of like it's a one off and i'm going to ha- i'm going to be playing with how stupid this this girl is not knowing that Sir Walter Scott did not write Last of the Mohicans, things of that nature, and thinks that there's actually a song called The Shimmies of Normandy, being a playoff of The Chimneys of Normandy. And <laughs> and I like the Marx Brothers, and I like that stupid type of punning 
humor. It's a viaduct. Okay, I'll ask why a duck. <laughs> I will admit this is a weakness <laughs> on my part of, of enjoying that type of wordplay. I am no stranger to stupid humor myself and have on occasion been accused of committing it. And I agree completely. Not every work has to be, I mean, he's having fun here. And in fact, I'm glad you mentioned Gretchen's 40 Winks because we talked about how that story and John Jackson's Arcady were both at different times sort of adapted as amateur theatricals where they would be read to audiences or performed in forensic competitions. And this one actually is probably the play that got Fitzgerald closest to a vaudeville stage. I mean, it actually was staged in 1923 for about a week. You found a clip from a group called the Triangle Club. Was that them? Yeah, this was in the New York Daily News for uh, 7th of April, 1927. And it's a, a theater company called the Triangle which is at 11th and Street and 7th Avenue in uh, New York. And this is their third season, apparently. And beginning on April 16th, they were going to present the bathtub comedy Porcelain in Pink by F. Scott Fitzgerald, author of the recent daily news serial, The Beautiful and Damned, will have its premiere and four other plays by American and Continental authors will be presented. A midnight performance will be given of the regular triangle bill. So I guess maybe <laughs> the timing is to keep all the kitties out of uh, you know, this. Yeah. And in fact, there are a couple more letters to Ober from this period, from April, May, 1923. He, now they're living in Great Neck, New York, and he's busy on a project that is going to pretty much torpedo any interest in the theater. But he writes about this guy named Gordon Brokovici, who was apparently one of the uh, two brothers interested in producing Porcelain Pink for the vaudeville circuit. And he actually even writes a letter to them, to Ober, saying that he did not was not able to attend rehearsals. So unlike any other Fitzgerald work that he wrote specifically for the stage, this one actually made... New York. Great Gatsby was adapted later on, but Fitzgerald was abroad when it was when it was performed. But something happened later in 1923 that pretty much ended Fitzgerald's any ambition that Fitzgerald had for writing for the stage. And what was that, Robert? We're, we're talking about that long neglected Fitzgerald masterpiece, more neglected even than The Beautiful and Damned, <laughs> more neglected than The Night Before Chancellorsville or any of the Philippe Count of Darkness stories. We are talking about, of course, The Vegetable or From President to Postman. That is a play that Fitzgerald labored over for most of 1923. And it was staged in Atlantic City as a kind of tryout for a possible Broadway run. And it was the first and probably most brutal flop of Fitzgerald's career. And there is a understandable reason for that. It is an awful, awful play an experiment in absurdity. I've tried for years to get people to do an essay for the Fitzgerald Review on it because I think it is perversely such a bomb that we don't know how to make sense of it. Other than it, it, it could be timely in our day and age because the basic premise is any idiot could be president. That's the problem is that Fitzgerald was just too far ahead of his time. There you go. Yeah, it's an interesting idea of like always have these perverse ideas for, for teaching and one would be like worst books. And so you could do this and Mosquitoes by Faulkner. Yeah, which is brutal. Which brutal. Um, Pierre or the Ambiguities by, by Melville. Cross the river and into the trees for Hemingway. Yeah. Mark Torino is going to kill us, but yes, across the river into the trees by Hemingway, that would be my choice as well. But it's a, it, you think about at this time, you have someone like Eugene O'Neill working in American theater. And at the other side of that, you get someone like Owen Davis, who is the 
who is the adapter of the great Gatsby for stage and, and the Gatsby adaptation, which kind of throws out everything that we think makes the great Gatsby, the great Gatsby, but it was a very successful adaptation. And it's the script that's used in the original 1926 movie. Davis, besides that was a very successful playwright. We would call him probably a a commercial playwright rather than say an artistic play like like O'Neill. But Fitzgerald just not fitting into anything that American theater was at the time. Yeah. It's an interesting question why he couldn't have gotten in with George Kaufman or any of the other roundtable folks and really learned the former structure. I think the problem with the vegetable is that it tries to, I mean, it is so surreal And honestly, it is too long. The one performance I've ever tried to sit through was about 16 years ago. It was staged in in Hempstead, New York at a Fitzgerald uh, conference. And I, I couldn't get to the end of it. I mean, it was about three hours long. And it just drags and goes nowhere. If you think of of the shape of of humor, humor has got to be bang, 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 set up, pratfall. It's got to be sort of a constant um, machine gun of, of, of laughs, and it just doesn't have it. Um, I think it, it's mm-hmm. interesting to me that his experiments in writing playlets work better on the page in many ways. They work better being taken out of the dramatic script world and being put into novels Uh, The Beautiful and Damned also has a section that's written as a playlet. And that was considered an an innovation at the time. Fitzgerald wasn't the first to do that, but it got him a lot of of attention. Well, do you think about the side of paradise with all of the reading that Amory is doing? And and he's reading Oscar Wilde. He's reading George Bernard Shaw. And that's Fitzgerald was doing that as well. I don't know how often would he have had the experience of seeing a Shaw play staged or a wild play staged. So he knows it through the, through reading right. more, more than anything. Just at the end of the day, unlike some of those other writers that could switch genres pretty quickly, you know, he was, it, it's part of the same reason that he struggled to write for the movies is that his mind was built for prose and doesn't mean he couldn't do snappy patter and repartee that is funny, but that a lot of his, the things we value in him, this, the, the gorgeousness of the style really resides in description. It's the same problem you have with Hemingway in the fifth column. Right, right. That is such a didactic play. It's a play that has a political purpose. And it just, you know, I I might throw that in as my worst Hemingway work and save pour across a river. One can point out, too, that Faulkner's efforts at the stage failed. What's the uh, sequel to Sanctuary? Requiem. Requiem Requiem for for none, which flopped big time. It's very hard to get a writer who is adept at more than one genre. You know, you have Robert Penn Warren, who is a really good poet and a really good prose writer. And that, and then there's the verse drama and things like that. And, and also the play version of all the King's men, but not many people were able to make that transition yeah. easily between poetry, prose, and drama. And it works the opposite way. I mean, when's the last time you read a short story by Tennessee Williams, even though he published a couple collections of them in his in his lifetime? And Thornton Wilder's the same way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're exactly right. Or Joseph Heller, we bombed in New Haven. Yeah, yeah. Of course, that was an anti-Vietnam play, too where there was a lot of political context to that that one uh, that they were trying out. Um, let's talk a little bit about the characters, though. Let's go back to that, because I do think we mentioned that there's echoes of Bernice mm-hmm. Bobser hair in here, and you mentioned head and shoulders. I think when we talk about Julie and the young man, maybe the most interesting thematic thing that we can say about this story is it does channel an anxiety that I think Fitzgerald was feeling 
long between maybe September 1919 and then into the summer of 1920, which was, was he going to be able to be a great literary writer while he was married to someone whose uh, frivolity and, and flippancy, like Zelda's, that he adored? When I read Porcelain Pink, the thing that jumps into my mind most is this is a version of, of Head and Shoulders. You basically have a bookish young man who is gets in a conversation, prudish young man, who gets in a conversation with kind of our prototypical new woman of 1919 or 1920, who's sexually provocative, but also intently superficial right? Not, not interested in being a philosopher. Now we don't have the Vulcan mind meld that um, goes, <laughs> to use a technical term, that goes on in, um, in Head and Shoulders where they switch personalities right. and she becomes a famous author and he becomes a vaudeville performer. But at the same time, you mentioned all of these where she thinks that um, Sir Walter Scott wrote Last of the Mohicans, and she doesn't honestly care that she's getting all this wrong. I mean, to her, it's just sort of a laugh at that world of, of learning. And that, that's maybe what's most interesting about it is Fitzgerald seemed to be attracted to, I mean, he wasn't going to be attracted to somebody who was like an Edna St. Vincent Millay, who at this time, by the way, was having threesomes with Edmund Wilson and John Peel Bishop, just to throw out a little sensationalism in the middle of this podcast. We're, we're trying to attract an audience here, so... Uh... Right, right, right. And and we are taping this while Robert and I are both sitting in a bathtub. Not the same bathtub. If, if one of us gets electrocuted, you'll know why. <laughs> that's right, that's right. You know, this whole conversation that they have where he's peeking in the room, there's an anxiety on the part of this young man that I think we can read biographically of whether this woman, now he, again, he thinks it's Lois, but whether this woman is going to love him because he values all of this culture. And when you get to lines like she's talking about, uh, there's only two mysterious people in history. Who are they? Uh, she says, the man with the iron mask, Andre Dumas, and the fellow who says, uh, uh, glug, 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 when the line is busy. That's her saying, I don't care about your world. And he gets very anxious about it. He loves her. But at the same time, he is almost panicking that when she starts talking about modern dances and he says, oh, I hate those modern dances. He's representing that old world of culture that the jazz age is, in a sense, superseding. Right. He is this highbrow who the first poem that he rem he remembered reciting and learned by heart is Evangeline. And she responds with Parker and Davis sitting in a, on a fence trying to make a dollar out of 15 cents. And he is yeah. eager. It's like, are you growing fond of literature? And she says, if it's not too ancient or complicated or depressing. You can almost take this as his inner dialogue about whether he wants to be a popular or commercial writer. Right, exactly. Is this young girl his audience? She's basically a flapper, naked one. But is he going to entertain this type of audience or is he looking for someone that's going to put him in the tradition of of Keats who was a major influence on him he's given a name early on but the stage directions it never presented he's he's Mr. Calkin and he's Lois is obviously they've been courting through their love of literature and he's he's telling her I've always loved poetry I can remember to this day the first poem I ever learned by heart it was Evangeline and she responds that's a fib did I say Evangeline I meant the skeleton in armor and both those poems are by Longfellow which even in 1920 is kind of old-fashioned it's more something your your grandmother would have liked you to have read yeah and in fact there's a famous put down of Longfellow and E.E. E. Cummings, I believe it's the Cambridge Ladies, right? Where they believe in Christ and Longfellow, both dead. Mm -hmm. And that gives you a sense of the provocativeness of, of modernism. So I guess at the same time that he's channeling some of his anxiety through this 
young man, he's also mocking the young man's literary tastes. Maybe he's just a a little a little pretentious. I mean, he sits there and talks about I love literature. And it's almost like he's so desperate for low the, the person that he thinks Lois is to confirm that that, uh, that that passion has relevance. Again, we are making more out of this story than I think Fitzgerald probably did. Um, this podcast probably will run longer than he took to write this story. <laughs> <laughs> but there is something in there about, uh, the, about the lowbrow. And maybe, maybe the best way to say it is this young man wishes he were highbrow, but he's exposing himself as middlebrow. And Julia's lowbrow defiantly. And Fitzgerald's anxious about where he fits in all of these categories. The distinction between what art has value, what literature has value, is one that we just kind of never get away from. I mean, it's wasn't it um who was it who did the seven lively arts? And that's a Gilbert Seldes. Gilbert Seldes, and that's a few years ahead of this. But it, I think in one of those, he has sort of a, a defense of vaudeville. Yeah, exactly. And this type of wordplay and this type of sort of suggestiveness, uh, as opposed to something of sort of the 19th century Victorian proper novel. It's the idea that popular culture can be as artistic as what we think of high culture. And in fact, you know, Seldes is very relevant today because I think when you look on the internet and you see all of the effort that goes into interpreting pop culture, television shows or music or even podcasts, commentary on podcasts, Basically, what all of these people are saying is the tools by which we interpret media are no different, whether we're looking at popular culture or whether we're looking at high culture, and that high culture might even be dead to us in the sense that it historically things the relevance of stuff passes out of passes out of view. You and I are old enough to have seen sort of the trajectory and the history of hip hop and rap mm-hmm. from the late seventies to the presence. And, and I remember when, you know, the sugar Hill gang and rappers delight right. filtered its way down to, to North Carolina and, the, the anxiety in the 80s and like was sampling an art what how was this really truly creative when you know no one was playing any instruments or things of that nature to where it is now yeah and and it's the same argument that goes on with electronica is you know is it is it music if it's not created by a musician exactly who's playing an instrument And I think that, uh, you know, it's a fascinating subject to address. And all Fitzgerald is doing is exploring these ideas in literature. I mean, we never get an idea that uh, that this young man is actually an artist himself. He's doing a lot of name dropping, but it's almost like he's pretending he's learned in order to impress Lois. And maybe maybe Fitzgerald is sort of channeling some anxieties of his own in terms of his own worthwhileness in the literary world. Well, I mean, you remember the description in the notebooks he gave of the side of paradise, a romance and a reading list. Right. And there is almost that way in which that novel is him showing off. This is, you know, all of and it's much like what he did with Sheila Graham in a college for one with a long reading list of, you know, things you have to read. This is what you need to know in order to be cultured. And, and it's interesting today that that, that attitude still exists. I mean, it's like, if you don't, if you don't know these essential albums, you really don't know the history of popular music. And those debates are always kind of fun to fun to watch. Let's do switch gears a little bit because we are running a little bit out of time. But we need to talk about the other character in the story, which is the bathtub. I mean, it gets equal billing with the skin color of the girl, porcelain and pink. The pink is a joke when the male character says, what are you wearing? And she says, well, I guess you'd call it pink. And she's referring to her naked skin. She said she got it for her birthday. So birthday suit joke there. Yeah. 
The bathtub, this is maybe a historical context that we don't appreciate about this story and the way that this story may have hit readers as being fresh and fresh and new. I'm about to lay the history of bathtubs on you. So sit back and dump some bubble bath in the tub and relax. This is where we become the next serial of podcast. <laughs> Bathtubs were relatively new at this point. Let me ask you a very personal question, Robert. How many times a week do you bathe? I don't bathe, I shower. Uh, How many times a week do you shower? I shower daily. Shower daily. That Mm. would, you would have been an anomaly a hundred years ago. Right. And we talked about that. That came up with the Gretchen's 40 Winks where the bow that she's running around with brags of taking a daily bath. But really, indoor pummeling was relatively new. Bathtubs themselves had been a luxury. I mean, before this, you would have taken a bath once a week, every few days in a, in a steel tub with hot water sort of dumped in there. Kind of the, the joke where you see in the Westerns with the guy sitting in the tin, you know, scratching his back with the brush. So we're really dealing with an advancement in home furnishing here to have a tub. And the fact that it is blue really would have been new because colors in bathroom furnishings really didn't come about until the late 20s. So Fitzgerald is looking forward here to the world of consumerism. It's never explained how this bathtub is blue, but this would have been weird to people when they read it because porcelain bathtubs, which would have been bathtubs that were steel but coated in in porcelain, to have them painted would have probably been something done either at home or done by, you know, custom-made tub. So we're looking at a world of luxury here. And the idea of people luxuriating in the bath, sitting in the bath for an hour at the time, I don't think I've ever been in a bathtub or in a shower for longer than maybe 10 minutes. I mean, I just got too much to do, but I have known people and it is sort of a motif in art to have people spend all kinds of times in bathtubs as a way of relaxing and and as, as, as a leisure activity. It's supposed to relax you. And do you go and buy these bath salts that are very popular nowadays, the bath bombs? Uh, no, no. I, I am very susceptible to perfumes and colognes. I, they ah. tend to give me a headache. So I avoid smelly things like that. Well, you know, if you're really into those sorts of things in the bathtub, then that's a huge consumer market there. And this is the beginning of it. So the this girl who's sitting in this tub would mm-hmm. be considered really an image of this new consumerism that is that is exploding in this period of time where goods are not just going to be mass manufactured, but they're going to become an essential part of your identity. So for her to luxuriate in this stereotypical, what we would probably picture as a clawfoot tub, but it's blue and it's painted blue as an expression of her individuality. That would just be something new for this period of time that we probably wouldn't recognize unless we delve deep into the history of the bathtub. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, she does ask the young man, tell me if there are any bathtubs in history. I think they've been frightfully neglected. And he mentions Agamemnon was stabbed in his tub. So that's goes back to the Oristyra. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Charlotte Corday stabbed Marat in his bathtub. And that's the famous painting. Is it by David? Right, right. Jean-Louis David. Because we were thinking you were brainstorming about. Well, I, I did. I, I actually put out a, uh, you know, we like to source our research out to the masses here. So we did put out a call amongst our friends and colleagues about notable instances in art of bathtub scenes. And we'll read a few of these. I did specify no TV because I didn't want to get deluged with uh, with uh, clips of Ernie on Sesame Street. <laughs> oh, rubber ducky, you're the one. You make bath time lots of fun. 
rubber ducky, I'm awfully fond of you. There are actually a lot more of them than, than I had expected. A lot of them come out of the art world. And one of the interesting things about it is in the art world, keep in mind that, that portraits like Degas, The Tub, but this is still in the period where the Comstock forces are out there. So paintings of nudes are very controversial. And it's only a few years before this that Anthony Comstock's people are raiding art galleries and, and pulling September Morn, which is an image of a woman, I believe, seaside or lakeside bathing. And it's labeling it pornography. Mm-hmm. So art is using a lot of the bathtub imagery at this point as a provocative scene. In terms of literature, some of the ones that come about, let's see, well, we have to divide our categories here. In literature, there's not really that many, but we do have a great one in uh, Hunter S. Thompson's uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, where where his buddy, the lawyer, does acid and has this horrible acid trip while listening to a portable tape recorder in the bathtub. He wants him to throw the tape recorder, I remember this, into the tub. Right. He's listening to White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane. Exactly. Surrealistic Pillow, the name of the album. And he wants to throw the grapefruit into, or, and he throws a grapefruit into the tub right when the rabbit eats his exploited deleted deleted head yeah i still remember this i love that book yeah it's a it's a it's probably the most famous bathtub scene in literature again there's not that many of them there is an ezra pound poem called the bathtub which uses the idea of water cooling as a metaphor for the relationship as the bathtub lined with white porcelain when the hot water gives out or goes tepid so is the slow cooling of our chivalrous passion. Oh, my much praise, but not altogether satisfactory lady. It makes more sense than the cantos. That is very, very true. You don't have to have footnotes in that poem to get it. Maybe even more famous than the Hunter S. Thompson, though, is J.D. Salinger's Zooey from the long short story about the Glass Brother. Find it in the collection Franny and Zooey. Zooey is kind of the transitional one where people started to feel like Salinger was losing it. But a large portion of that is about Zooey sitting in the bathtub, sort of spouting Buddhist wisdom. Again, you get this idea of somebody just having the long time to to think about these things. That's what the bathtub is for. Bathtubs show up a lot in photography. Very famous image when right after the death of Hitler, where they went in and stormed his mountain lair. There was a photographer named Lee Miller who had been a lover of Man Ray, who was a Parisian contemporary of Fitzgerald's and Zelda's. And the first thing she did was strip down and take a bath in Hitler's bathtub and and take pictures of it. And that was as symbolic of victory in a lot of ways as tearing down a flag. And then you have Andy Warhol, who made 26-hour movie. (laughs) It's not on Amazon Prime, called Tub Girls. And it's just shot after shot of of women sitting in bathtubs together, which back in those days, that was probably not as visible as it is today. Then we get to music videos. You forgot one great one. Oh, okay. All right. Lebowski, the dude sitting in his tub, listening to bowling. There you go. And having a marmot thrown in. Well, see, my research failed me there. I I had totally forgot that one. But that's a great one. And again, it it dramatizes that same thing. The idea that somebody has the time to sit in a bathtub for long periods of time and and reflect. Okay, here's music video. Two examples for you. Dig if you will. Uh, Yeah, you and I engaged in a kiss. Well, not us, not literally, yes. That, well, yes, not literally, but yes, yes. Right, exactly. uh, Prince is when doves cry right uh begins with him crawling out of a clawfoot tub and then one that was recommended to us because of uh the intense cindy crawford nostalgia that it that it prompts which is george michael's freedom 
from a few years later. That's all the supermodels in that as well. That's that, right. Yeah. That's right. And it's Cindy Crawford, I believe, is the one that gets the uh, luxurious bath. So, again, the motif of the bathtub, we're being kind of silly here and mocking the whole idea of scholarship. Uh, I suppose somebody out there has probably written a whole dissertation on the history of the bathtub and literature. But it does serve a symbolic purpose like anything else. And it dramatizes, I think, the point that Fitzgerald was sort of making in this story that these bathtubs are new consumer goods. And it's indicative of this new rising generation of young women that they are perfectly comfortable being naked in the tub that they want to be seen naked, that they have no problem with nudity, and that that the bathtub is their indulgence. It requires a certain, a real amount of leisure. Right. It requires a, a real amount of, of capital and comfort uh, to get that. There is one sad example in a bathtub, though, in Fitzgerald from The Great Gatsby. Do you remember this? It is not springing to mind. It's when Daisy is getting married. And oh, the the letter, the yeah, the, letter the letter that Jay Gatz writes her, right? And uh, and it gets wet in the tub. So and she's drunk with with the pearls and congratulate me. Yep, so, yep. Woo. So Zelda was very fond of taking long baths, and I think that was that was a lot of where some of this comes from. But anyway. I think we've said all we have to say about uh, porcelain and pink, unless you have any other uh, insights you'd like to offer, Robert. I think we have discussed this story in such a way and to such such an extent that no one will ever have to talk about it ever again. That's right. We the the water has gone cold on this story, <laughs> shall we say? So one of the things we always do is we got to rate this story. How would you rate it on a scale of one to ten Zeldas? I'm going to give it probably a, a a very generous six. Okay. For what it is, it it's good, and it doesn't promise to be anything other than sort of a light trifle that takes you know 15 minutes to read and you get a few laughs and move on with your life if it takes you 15 minutes to read this story you're reading it twice but yeah. <laughs> uh or maybe three times yeah i would probably give it bullet right down the middle and give it five i think even in terms of what it is it could have been funnier maybe with a little more effort i don't think i think it falls a little flat in terms of exactly what he's trying to do with the with the three characters. I love the premise. I love the the stage directions that are mocking these conventions of vaudeville, but I really want to see it. I wanted to see it pop in the way that maybe a vaudeville routine would. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't feel like it ever finds out really what it's trying to do. I think sometimes Fitzgerald, you know, could be kind of again, a little flippant about stuff and and really just kind of put things out there that maybe, uh, you know, and, and honestly, when I go back and reread the smart set um, from beginning to end, some of those issues that he's in, he's not alone in this. What we think of as quote unquote sophisticated writing, the humor, it's not Mad Magazine satire that we're used to as being funny. And it's and it's maybe a little too Noel Cowardy for me. I have to give a shout out to a, a associate, a friend of ours, David Earl, who who did a mm -hmm. lot of uh, work on sort of pulp modernism and and has an examination right. of the smart set and sort of Minkin's association with um, with um, sort of the seedier side of things as a way of sort of right. uh, protesting. And of course, now that I mentioned it, we forgot one bathroom bathtub piece, H.L. Mencken's neglected right. anniversary, uh, which is a hoax article he wrote about the invention of the bathtub and how bathing was once illegal yeah. in the United States. There you go. That's probably the best example, the most relevant example. And here we go. We forgot in our excitement to get to Prince and Cindy Crawford, we totally overlooked H.L. Well, I, in the grand scheme of things, I will pick Prince and Cindy Crawford over H.L. Mink in any day of the week. Yeah, 
I, I don't want to see H.L. Mencken no, in a bathtub. No, no. Be like seeing William William Taft in a bath bathtub. <laughs> Who, William Taft. How could we miss bat, that bathtub story? The the legend of William Taft ordering a bathtub and and getting stuck in it. Who is the fat Ohio president <laughs> who's a sex machine to all the chicks? <laughs> Taft. Taft. That's uh, that was that was that was great. It'd be great hit. All right. The other thing we do is we pull a random story out of the hat, and so in our next episode, we are going to do. Okay, we're gonna do a crime story. Ooh. Called the Fiend, not the, the Friend, fiend. but the Fiend. And this is a story from the 1930s. It was collected in Taps at Reveille. So he did think something of it, but it is an Esquire story. So we will be delving into the world. This will be this will be fun because we can get into some true crime podcasting on this one. Oh, nice. Nice. So. All right, Robert. Well, thank you very much for your time. Uh, always a joy talking to you, Kurt. And we thank the listeners. And we will be back in a few short weeks for our third installment of season two. Until then, all we can say is rub-a-dub-dub. <laughs> Best to everyone. There's a rainbow. There's an asteroid. Crashed in the bathtub. Yes, sitting in the bathtub. Full of her fingers. Full of her fingers. Yes, sitting in the bathtub. Says a we'll edit this so i don't look like an idiot